Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Gish Jen at Ramsey County Library, New Brighton. Gish Jen is a second-generation Chinese-American and a thoughtful chronicler of emigration, assimilation, and multiculturalism as they relate to the modern American experience. The Los Angeles Times said of her 1991 debut, Typical American, Jen has done much more than tell an immigration story. She has done it in some ways better than it has ever been done before. Jen's shrewd insights and sensitive prose are not confined to novels. Her fiction has appeared an impressive four times in the competitive Best American Short Stories anthology. Jen's foyers into nonfiction include The Girl at the Baggage Claim, Exploring the East-West Culture Gap, and Tiger Writing, a semi-autobiographical examination of self in different cultural contexts. Jen's eighth and latest book, The Resisters, offers something of a departure. It is set in a dystopian future ravaged by climate change. In a deeply divided society, baseball prodigy Gwen is plucked from the slums to represent North America in the newly reconstituted Olympic Games. Gwen and this most innocuous of sports become an unexpected rallying point for disenfranchised social justice warriors. Uh, thank you, thank you all for coming. Um, so this is um, my eighth book. Um, I have to say that over the course of my career, I've been asked like any number of questions. You know, what happens to Mona Chang after she marries uh, Seth Bandel? You know, do you mind that we named our dog after Blondie and the Love Wife? You know, how can you be Cambodian? We thought you were Jewish. Um, but I never really gotten the kind of questions that I'm getting with this book, uh, which more or less add up to like what happened to you. <laughs> Um, and that is because it is a post-automation surveillance state feminist baseball dystopia. And so people have been asking me, like, like yeah, like, what, you know, like, like, where did this come from? Um, and the answer is that in 2017, um, my daughter, um, this is the second of my children, went off to college. And so there I was. I was an empty nester. And, um, and you know, of course, like all empty nesters, I cried, I cried, I cried. You know, but then suddenly, slowly, 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 it began to dawn on me that I actually had more control over my day than I'd had in, in 28 years. Um, and um, you know, and it, you know, suddenly realized that I, you know, I could do whatever I wanted. Um, moreover, um, I had just been telling my daughter like a hundred thousand times, like, please, you know, have fun, explore, take risks. You know, so that as I sat down to write, I thought, well, maybe I should 
have fun, explore, take risks, right? Um, but you know, the funny thing is that, of course, even though I had expressly given myself permission to write whatever I damn well pleased, um, you know, lo and behold, when I sat down, I did not write, you know, it was not like a girls' weekend in Paris, you know, involving devastatingly handsome men and designer drugs. Um, I instead wrote a book about parents watching their daughter grow up and go off to school. Um, now, I, I will say that, um, that uh, you know, like all parents at that juncture, I was very worried about my daughter. You know, I worried about all the normal things. You know, she's going to go involve the wrong guy, you know, the drugs, the alcohol, everything. Um, and that is all very much part of my book. But in addition, there was another set of worries, you know, which is really kind of the citizen worries. You know, so there I am, I have a daughter going off into this world. And I look at the world, and you know, I'd already been worried about the world, but when you think about your daughter going into it, you become very, very, very worried, right? And you know, it was 2017, so at that point, um, fall 2017, you know, Trump had been in office for like 10 months. I think it's becoming clear that we, you know, that this was not just like you know, politics in another flavor, but that we really that you know, democracy itself was on the line. Um, that year, too, there had been one storm after the next. I don't know if you remember this, but like every single storm was like the storm of the century, except we had like five of them. You know, so we had one after the another, uh, next. Um, you know, in addition, um, something very weird had happened, which is that um, Facebook had these chatbots that this is an experiment that they were running with these chatbots. These chatbots started talking to each other in a non-human language. I don't know if you remember that. It was, it, that it was people were so freaked out because the programmers didn't know what they were saying. They were so freaked out that the Facebook closed that experiment down. You know, I mean, because it was just like, oh my God, you know? Um, and they precipitated a big back and forth between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk about, about artificial intelligence and what that could mean. So, you know, all these, all, so all these terrible things are going on. And, um, and, you know, and of course, they all, you know, they all ended up in my book. Um, but also, at the same time, there were a lot of amazing uh, positive things going on too, right? So that was the year that um, Colin, um, Colin um, Kaepernick took a knee. And of course, sports do figure very large in this book, but I think the whole idea that sports could be, you know, that sports and sporting um, events could be a site of resistance. I'm sure, you know, I mean, it wasn't conscious of this, but I'm sure that I would not have written that had it not been for Colin Kaepernick. Um, and in addition, another thing that figures very largely in my book is knitting. You know, and people say, well, where does the knitting come from? But of course, that was the year of the Women's March, right? You know, the pink hats. And so the idea that, you know, that knitting, you know, knitting, um, women knitting, you know, were kind of a new force in American politics um, was there. And I, don't know if I'm, and I don't know about here, but in, in my hometown of Massachusetts, my home state of Massachusetts, people were doing things, they were like um, wrapping trees with knitting. You know, so I think the idea was that, you know, that, that the women's movement had, had gone on to a, a new stage where it wasn't just about kind of making our way into this male universe, but this idea that maybe we were going to have a kind of a radical caring, a feminization of the public realm, you know, was something that people were beginning to hope would happen. Um, I don't need to tell you after Super Tuesday yesterday, <laughs> that, that hope is, you know, seems to be a bit of a fond one now. Um, but in any case, um, but, uh, but that, you know, the, all those things were on my mind as I sat down to write this book. 
So I am going to read you a little bit from it. Um, I'm going to read you kind of a longer section from the beginning and then a shorter section later on. Then I'll be happy to take questions. We're a small enough group that we can actually conduct this like a book club. Um, but um, I will say that there have been a lot of questions also about, about the baseball in this book, like why baseball? And um, as you'll hear, you know, there are definitely thematic and artistic reasons for the baseball. But there's also a personal reason. Um, and the personal reason is very simply that baseball is, is a sport that neither one of my children ever had anything to do with. So kind of um, neither one of my kids can hit a ball. I mean, I don't think they've ever managed to actually make that bat come in contact with a ball. And, um, and neither one of them can uh, catch, and they certainly cannot pitch. And, um, and that made it a safe thing that as a parent that, that I could write about without having my head come off. Um, my daughter, I, should, I will confess, is, is, is an active, is a, in, you know, is a competitive debater. And when I say that truly, if I wrote something that was about her, that my head would not be attached to my body right now, I mean it. <laughs> anyway, so um, I'm going to read this. This part is from the beginning of the book. Um, so um, this, this family involves a father named Grant, um, his very, very powerful um, and formidable wife, um, Eleanor, who was a lawyer, and their daughter, Gwen. Gwen, it turns out, is a pitching prodigy, although in the beginning of the book she's just been born, so you don't know that. Um, and uh, they, they, this book is set you know, 40 or 50 years in the future, some undefined um, period of time. Uh, in this world, there's, there's two classes of people. It's post-automation, so there are people who have jobs um, and people who don't. And the people who don't have jobs are called the surplus. And the people who have jobs are called the netted. And they're called the netted because they're affiliated with a group, um, an entity that they, people call Aunt Nettie. Um, Aunt Nettie is a kind of a popular way of, of referring to something which is really called the auto net. So you know, of course, right now, most of us are, are running on 4G phones, you know, right? And um, 5G is being rolled out in many cities. Um, so if you can imagine a future where we have like a 9 or a 10 or an 11G, what that might look like. And so it's, so it's an internet that's rolled up with automation, which is rolled up with um, artificial intelligence and also with, um, with a lot of with Alexa-like functions. So this is the houses in this world talk. Uh, and, and surveil you, of course. Um, and um, people have sort of said, like, oh my God, like oh, everything in your book is true. <laughs> and uh, sadly, you know, it, it, it's closer to the truth than we would like. But anyway, let me just read. This is Grant talking from the beginning of the book. As her parents, Eleanor and I should have known earlier, but Gwen was a preemie to begin with. That meant oxygen at first and after that special checkups. And her early months were bumpy. She had jaundice, she had roseola, she had colic, she had a heart murmur. Things that I can now see distracted us. Especially with the one chance policy, we were focused on her health to the exclusion of all else. For the knitted, it was different of course, but for us surplus, the limit was one pregnancy per couple and Eleanor was just out of jail. Outside the house, she had a drone minder tracking her every move. The message was clear. She was not getting away with anything. 
And in any case, we loved Gwen and would never have wanted to replace her. Worried though we were that she was delicate, that she might never consume the way she needed to, the way we all needed to. Not that charges of underconsumption couldn't be fought in the courts. This was auto-America, after all. For all the changes wrought by AI and automation, now rolled up with the internet into the i-burrito we called Aunt Nettie, we did still have a constitution. And if anyone could defend what was left of our rights, it was our own fierce Eleanor, of whom even the platoons of Canadian geese who patrolled our neighborhood, the pit bulls, one might say, of the waddling world, were afraid. But as Eleanor's incarceration brought home, these battles had a price. And in the meanwhile, even worrying and weighing the options distracted us from realizing other things, things we might have noticed a bit earlier had Gwen had a sibling. It is so hard for a new parent to imagine a child any different from the one he or she has. Children do so have their own gravity. They are their own normal. And so it's only now that we can see that there were signs. All children take what's in their crib and throw it, for example. It's universal. But Gwen threw her stuffed animals straight through her bedroom doorway. They shot out, never so much as grazing the doorframe. And they always hit the wall of the staircase across from her bedroom at a certain spot with the precise force they needed to bounce forward and drop clean down to the bottom of the stairwell. Was she maybe two when she did this? Not even, although she was already a southpaw. And already she seemed to have unusually long fingers and long arms. Or so I remember remarking one day, not that Eleanor and I had so many babies on which to base our comparison. Ours was just an impression, but it was a strong impression. Her fingers were long. I remember, too, having to round up a veritable menagerie on the landing before I could start up the stairs. The stuffed hippo, the stuffed tiger, the three or four stuffed dogs, the stuffed orca and toucan and platypus and turtle. I gathered them all into my arms like the storybook zookeeper of some peaceable kingdom. It was as if I, too, ought by rights to have been made of plush. Of course, our house was automated as all surplus house, houses were required to be by law. And the animals could easily have been clear floated. All I had to do was say the word, and the house bots would emerge from their closets, their green appendages poised to help. Clear float now? Are those animals in your way? And we can roll in clear if you'd prefer. You have a choice. You always have a choice. The choice business being a new feature of the program a bit of cyber ingratiation, you might say, to balance its more habitual cyber intimidation. If you trip, it will be your own fault, for example, and do note that your choice is on the record. Nothing is being hidden from you. Your choice is on the record, meaning that I was losing living points every time. Living points being something like what we used to call brownie points when I was growing up, except that these were more critical than money for everything for, from getting a loan to getting a plane ticket to getting Gwen into net you one day, should we dream of doing that. A goal that people said involved tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of points. But I picked the animals up myself anyway. 
as did Eleanor when it was she who came upon them, her silver hair and black eyes shining. And all because we wanted to hear, we wanted to hear her quick cresting laughter as she immediately set about hurling them again. Everything was a game to her, a most wonderful, loving, endless game. Her spy eyes lit up with mischief. Her tea brown cheeks flushed the hot orange pink you see on the underside of clouds at sunset. Often she laughed so hard she fell as she threw, plopping down on her soft bottom, but grabbing the crib rail so hard as she scrambled back up, the whole crib shook. Was this the delicate newborn we had once so anxiously tended? Now breathtakingly robust, indestructible it seemed, she wore an old-time soft yellow blanket sleeper with attached feet and bunny ears, a hand-knit extra warm version of a suit Eleanor remembered from her own childhood. None of this baby zone heating over Wen's crib, in other words. She hardly seemed to need zone heat in any case, having learned so early to blow on her hands if they were cold and to cuddle with us if she needed to for warmth. Indeed, we were all given to, cut, to cuddling, and we wore, all wore sweaters, too, to avoid turning on the zone heat, for which we were constantly house-scolded. Don't you find it a bit chilly? Why not choose to turn on the zone heat? Don't you find it a bit chilly? But we ignored it. For this was how the auto house started, wasn't it? With thermostats that sent to Aunt Nettie first data, then videos. Then came drone deliverers and fridge stockers, kit trackers and robo-sitters, elder helpers and yard bots, all of which reported to Aunt Nettie as dutifully as any spy network recording our steps, our pictures, our relationships, and back when we soon to be surplus still had them, our careers. And she, in turn, took what she knew and applied it, even proffering along the way solace and advice. Indeed, in the early days of autom automation, I myself brought up Ask Aunt Nettie more often than I care to recall, and can still remember her consoling voice as she volunteered I'm here, and insisted, I want to hear everything, and reassured me, of course you feel that way, Grant. How could you not? You're only human. I did laugh at that, you're only human. Still, I found not only that part of me responded to the words, but it, that it responded deeply, that it listened gratefully as Aunt Nettie advanced some surprisingly useful advice on a range of subjects, including the many, I hadn't realized how many, for which noble Eleanor had no time. Would someone like me, whose mother had had him with who needs them men, have trouble knowing how to be a father, for example? The answer to which was that, given what men could be, I might in fact be better off without a role model anyway. Or how about, did someone like me really need to own both black and brown shoes now that I was no longer teaching? The answer to which was yes, if I cared about social acceptance, which yes, my data showed that I did underneath, and which yes, was really just as well, correlated as such concern was with mental health, especially among unretrainables, such as yes, she had heard I now was. Like others, I had allowed Aunt Nettie to keep my calendar back in the days when, as the young head of an English as a second language program, I still had immigrants to teach and obligations to juggle. This was some time ago now, 
back before shipping back. But like others then, I had also allowed Aunt Nettie to email people on my behalf, checking the mimic your voice option and marveling at just how perfectly she could replicate my ticks of phrasing, especially because I had, in my youthful diligence, sent so many thousands of emails. Indeed, Aunt Nettie had so much data on me that not even Eleanor could tell it was not I who composed the messages she received from my account. And like others too, I had taken advantage of the easy tools offered to me and trained Aunt Nettie to write my lessons and my syllabi, even to generate sample sentences and funny jokes. Indeed, I trained her so well that I had more than once observed that an avatar could now run the class. As for why I did these things, I generally did them, I see now, because I appreciated some associated convenience, which is to say that I could be, as my mother liked to say, lazy as a rock at the bottom of a hill. And as for the resulting reality, was it not disconcertingly like the sea level rise and heat and wind we knew long ago would come with climate change, but have since come to call normal? No one would have willfully chosen the stranding of whole office parks and schools and neighborhoods by the flooding we saw now. No one would have willfully chosen the generating of the places we called maroon places, just as no one would have chosen the extinction of frogs and of polar bears or the decimation of our pine and spruce forests by the explosion in the number of bark beetles. And yet, it was something we humans did finally choose. After all, it was not the Earth that chose it or any other creature. It was we who made our world what it was. It was we who were responsible. Then I'm going to just read another section for far, farther on in the book. Um, so Gwen has become a, um, a, a pitcher, and um, she is getting ready to pitch in the Olympics. Um, when I wrote this section, I will say that having baseball as an Olympic sport was just a matter of artistic license. Um, but it does turn out that baseball is going to be an Olympic sport this summer. Um, and I will say that she, so she and her teammates are, are looking at the China Russian team that they're about to play. Um, they're terrified because the, the China Russian team has been um, genetically improved. Um, and that means, among other things, that they are all switch hitters. Perhaps all this was fear, was fear pure and simple on the part of Gwen's teammates. But feeding their obsession, of course, was the sense that baseball was more than a sport, that it was a crown jewel. There were people who said it wasn't even invented in America. There were people who point out, pointed out it was mentioned by Jane Austen long before it was ever mentioned here. But if baseball took on a hallowed meaning, it took on that meaning in our American dreams. For was this not the level playing field we envisioned, the field on which people could show what they were made of? And didn't we Americans believe above all that everyone should have a real chance at bat? Didn't we believe that with the good of the team at heart, something in us might just hit a ball off our shoe tops and send it sailing clear out of the park? If, twin, if Gwen's teammates were playing China Russia for something, I thought it was for this, for a chance to show my mother would have said that even if we all returned to the dirt and the wind and the rain, like the plants and the animals, we had a bigness in us 
something beyond algorithms and beyond upgrades, something we were proud to call human, or so it seemed to me. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Gishjen and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how long it took Jen to write The Resistors. You know, I wrote this very, very, very fast. You know, it's interesting because um, when I had children, I mean, I was always still writing, but I was pretty much, pretty regularly four or five years between books. And then I will say that, you know, for those of you wondering, is there a mommy tax? <laughs> no sooner did my daughter leave than I, I, I wrote this book in 10 months, which for me is just, you know. But that was because I could write around the clock, you know. And I think that also, you know, one of the big questions is, you know, is the, the nature of what, of what I imagined, this whole world, you know, was that something made possible by the fact that I had a different day? And that I had, you know what I mean? So I didn't have to pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. I could just write straight through. And was that in, what enabled me to kind of, you know, because people talked about the world, I didn't do any world building exercises, whatever it is they teach you to do in, the, in MFA programs today. I didn't do any of that. You know, I just, I just dreamt it and wrote it down. And um, like I say, you know, it's an interesting question that I myself can't quite answer whether the difference in my schedule was what made this book possible. This audience member asks if Jen considers this book science fiction. Let me just say that I actually have, I read a lot of science fiction when I was in middle school. So seventh, eighth grade, you know, that read of all, you know, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, you know, all that stuff. Um, as well as lo a lot of the, that Cold War dystopian fiction, like Darkness at Noon, those, those kinds of things. Um, and but I would not actually call this science fiction. You know, I mean, to me, it's more speculative fiction. Um, and you know, my resistance to calling it science fiction is kind of interesting. I mean, I you know, um, I'm about to actually um, interview Margaret Atwood for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in two weeks, um, and so I've been doing a little research. And I noticed that she also has really resisted the science fiction label, um, even though you know, is Handmaid's Tale is that science fiction or not? Anyway, I think. I think that probably both of us would make the distinction that you know there are no Martians. There's no, you know, if you if, I don't know if you read like the third body pro, the third is it the third body problem or three body problem, anyway. By um, but you know in other words, there's a lot of science fiction, but it involves other galaxies. You know, there are no other galaxies here. Um, actually, everything is kind of really pretty much an extrapolation of what was going on in 2017. So, you know, I think if you took any, any of those trends that I was talking about and you just follow them out for 50 years, that's what you see in this book. So I guess that's, I mean, it's not realistic in the sense it's not what's happening now exactly, um, but, it, it, but it's not, it's not it's, it doesn't involve, you know, you know, people who are non-human, for example. Everybody's human. Um, although they are, bio, you know, they are genetically engineered, some of them, There's some of them genetically improved. Um, but that also, you know, that's right around the corner. I mean, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, what kind of limits we put on. I mean, my point is not so much that this is what's going to happen, so much as this is what could happen, you know, absent legislation and that sort of thing. This question is about the difficulty for Jen to write in a subject matter that is so different from her previous work. 
Yes, it's very, very different. So um, before this, I was a realist, you know, I mean, kind of. Um, so my, my earliest book um, is, you know, is I started off writing about, um, especially the immigrant, you know, um, the, American, uh, the American experiment as seen through the immigrant um, uh, experience, I guess you would say. So I was, I was, you know, my very first book was called Typical American, and so I was very much part, I would say I was at the very beginning of the, um, of the movement that was sort of trying to recast the immigrant experience as central to the American experience. So that's why my first book was called Typical American, and it was about re redefining what an American is. So my, the question I, rose, I raised in that book is, you know, is an American still a person who grows up on a farm and eats apple pie? Or maybe is not everyone who asks that question, like what you know, am you know, what does it mean to be Iranian American, Jewish American, Chinese American? As soon as you ask that question, are you not an American? Um, and um, because I, I, you know, and then I, I'm, so I've been very interested in questions of identity and um, and um, what it means, what the American experiment is about. Um, so that's from the beginning, but but I would say that you know, they, all my books were were, were quite um, realistic. You know, I mean, like they, they were always, like I say, there. I think I don't think that they were simply like this is what. There were never books that were only about this is what it's like to grow up Asian American. They were always more. Um, my second book was about what it meant. You know, what was what. Um, you know, it was about a Chinese American turning Jewish. So it was really an expo an exploration of ethnicity in America. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of that moment at which it suddenly became natural. You know, natural to be, you know, to be an ethnic American. You know what I mean? As if, you know, as if, as if, you know, as if that was a normal thing for us to have Asian American dorms, for example. You know, the answer is five minutes earlier, no one had, had no one would ever think to have an Asian American dorm. In fact, we didn't even have the term Asian American, and suddenly that was like that was obviously who you were, and that was obviously your identity. Um, that's something that happened on the on the heels of the civil rights movement. And so I was kind of interested in that moment where suddenly, you know, this whole ethnic identity thing was born. Um, and so, um, so, you know, so that was, you know, and, and you know, and, and asked a lot of questions like, why is it that, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an optional thing to be kind of um, Irish American or Italian American, but it's not an optional thing for the Asian American, right? You know, so like, you know, why is it that, you know, uh, you, know uh, you can drop the Irish American from writer and that's, that's a normal thing to do, but somehow Asian American writer, <laughs> you know, it's like you can never kind of, you know, decouple those things. You know, ask those kinds, of, those kinds of questions. Anyway, so I've, you know, I've been going on, so, you know, I, you know, and so I had another two books, you know, um, all, again, all asking these kinds of questions, you know, um, is America, Love Wife basically asked, is America kind of, it was written on the heels of 9-11. You know, are we gonna, what's gonna happen to our great American hospitality post 9-11? And sure enough, as we see something, you know, <laughs> our great American hospitality has, has greatly changed. Um, but I was at, I did ask that, in, in, you know, um, and, um, and uh, World of Town, you know, is the next book, you know, looked very much at kind of, you know, the, the, the rural, the rural urban divide. And um, you know what it, you know what does it mean that we have? Uh, it would look at really the rise of fundamentalism, um, especially in rural America, and um, and ask kind of a, a lot of questions too about about globalization. Um, you know what what that meant for the American town. Um, so you know, but all those books, so you know, you can sort of see as with this book, always interested in you know America and what is happening to America. Um, 
but they, but all doing that in, in a more or less realistic fashion. So I'd never done anything like this set in the future before. But like I say, but you know, you say, you know, I'm sitting down to write. You know, I've just been through freshman orientation, where the word future has come up like every five minutes, right? The future, the future, the future, the future, the future. And you know, lo and behold, I sit down. I think, well, maybe I should write about the future. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that also, you know, dystopias were, you know, uh, you know, have been quite the fashion um, because of what's going on politically, and. Um, so I think that the idea of creating a dystopia is not that unusual. Um, maybe what's a little bit unusual about mine is that it's people keep on saying, it's a, it's a buoyant dystopia. You know, I mean, my book is kind of funny. It's very kind of hopeful. I mean, it is called The Resistors. You know, this is not about, you know, like we go into the future and we've just, everything, everything we know and love has just been flattened forever. Um, and I think that, so it's, you know, I have kind of, mine is a much more mixed, I mean, I, 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 mean, I don't, the dark side is quite dark. Um, but I think, again, I think it really comes right out of my own experience, which is that, you know, I'm looking at the world and, you know, there's a lot to be quite concerned about. But I'm also looking at a, young, a younger generation that, um, well, look, you know, they're not, they don't seem to be voting, so I, maybe my, my optimism is, 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 is misplaced. But, um, I, but I actually know a lot, a lot of young people who are very engaged, very, you know, very well educated, and kind of, I will say far more more mature than I was at their age, you know, and um, and and they get it, you know, they get it. So so there's a way in which I, I also have this great optimism, and I think you can see both of those fans in this book. This audience member inquires if Gish Jen is a baseball fan. Yeah, that's really a good question. You know, the funny thing is I'm not really a baseball fan, but um, but I am surrounded by baseball fanatics. So, and, and um, there's a way in which I think that, you know, for me, when I, as a person who writes about America, um, it's not surprising that I would see that as very, you know, as, as, as very caught up with, with America. Uh, not just because I had read that, you know, in some book that Sarah said, you know, baseball is a national pastime, um, but because that was our, my experience growing up. So my parents were Chinese immigrants. Um, and that means that, you know, among other things, you know, one of their first experiences of kind of performing Americanness and kind of feeling American um, involved going to baseball games, right? They would go to the games, and this, uh, many, many immigrants do this, you know. They go to the games, they cheer, they have a hot dog, they learn the rules. Um, and actually, I will say that they're learning a lot more about America doing that than you would think. I mean, they are, you know, the, the, I mean, for someone from China, you know, the, the level playing field, everybody gets a turn, this balance between the, this kind of, for them, new, new balance between the individual and the team, um, the idea that you have an arena which is governed by rules that everybody agrees on, but rules that presumably are meant to bring out the best in you. Um, you know, all these are, are, are new ideas. And um, in my parent, in my mother's case particularly, um, this this kind of this first experience of going to a ball game uh, turned her into a rabid Yankees fan, and I do mean rabid, um, which is very funny because my mother is like the least athletic person you have ever met. I mean, I I really mean that. I mean, if she you asked her to walk at this point from here to the parking lot, that would be a big deal. Um, but she, such is her avidity that um, a couple summers ago, she was, uh, she was, she's in her 90s, and she was in septic shock. So she was, we were all, she was non-responsive, we're all rushing to her sick bed with thinking that, you know, she was gonna die. A priest had been called in for last rites. And, you know, as we're all, you know, my brother is there, he's waiting for us to all arrive, and as he, he's there, just along with my mother, he doesn't know what to do, and he leans over my mother, 
And in an effort to get her to respond, he says, he says, Mom, he says, the Yankees are in a slump. <laughs> I kid you not, this is what he said. He said, the Red Sox are eating their lunch. And sure enough, my mother opens her eyes. <laughs> and without missing a beat, she says, that Aaron Boone should be fired. Aaron Boone is the manager, manager of the Yankees. <laughs> so when I say that she is really a rabid fan, I mean, she is really rabid, you know? And I will say, too, that um, I also, I had a very athletic older brother. And, um, and don't ask me how, but you know, they, they sent him into this boys club in Yonkers, New York, I'm sure just because he had all this energy, you know what I mean, and they didn't know what to do with him. And you know, one of the coaches there um, figured out my brother could not only play baseball, that he could really pitch. And um, this guy, um, this is like one of these working class towns where, where baseball is taken very, very seriously. I mean, it's like you miss a practice and you're dropped. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 like a, it's definitely a training camp, right? Um, and the guy, the coach had, had, had uh, played for the White Sox, the Chicago White Sox and so on. So anyways, there, there's my brother. My parents actually were very anti-sports and, uh, and like my brother had actually went on to be very athletic in other arenas. Like for instance, he, he was a starting forward for um, Johns Hopkins lacrosse at the time when Johns Hopkins went and, and, and won the NCAAs. They were NCAA champions. My parents never went to one game. You know, so they were, they were anti-sports actually. But the big exception was baseball, you know, because they identified it with America. So kind of like the baseball was the one thing they went to. My, they went to all the games my brother played in. My brother went on to be one of the best pitchers in the city. So he was in he was in the paper um, when they had their father son, you know, gala. He was brought up to meet Tom Seaver, you know. They, he said they, he was introduced to Tom Seaver. Said we have this Chinese kid who can pitch. And of course, you know, most people in Yonkers, New York had never seen anybody who looked anything slightly like us, you know, so. Um, and, uh, you know, and Tom Seaver taught him to, to, to throw the curveball. And, you know, so there's a lot of stories like this around my brother and baseball. So there's a way in which, in one way, for me to write about baseball seems very weird since I myself don't play, my kids don't play, you know, I don't have anything to do with baseball. Um, but in another way, it's very much, uh, you know, an extension really. I think of the immigrant experience and something, but there's something that, you know, so there's a way in which the immigrant experience does inform this book, but in quite a tangential way. I, I will say my brother had a great time also growing up in this, you know, because, you know, it's the whole street, you know, playing on the street thing, you know. So at one point he's, you know, he's playing with his friends and, you know, they've hit yet another foul ball into this lady's yard. You know, this lady comes storming out. <laughs> she takes their ball, they're playing with all the spalding balls. She puts it on the driveway. Say, you hit one more foul ball into my, into my yard, this is what's gonna happen to it. And she takes a cleaver and <laughs> I mean, this is like, you know, this kind of thing went on all the time. And, uh, and anyway, after that, the boys moved out to another street that was, that, you know, was not as good actually because there was more traffic on it. And at one point, there was like a, there's a car like parked in the way, and it was the summertime, so it was, it was a Cadillac, and its half its, its windows were kind of cranked half down. And so one of the other kids said to my brother, "said You're such a good pitcher. I dare you to throw a ball right through that car." My brother, in an unusual show of good sense, said. Um, I don't think I should do that because he had just been in trouble for batting a ball through some lady's window, bedroom window. And the lady had come to our house, you know, kind of, I want to, you know, I want you to pay for that window. And my mother, and you guys, my mother, <laughs> she really had nothing, had no idea what was going on in America in many ways. But nonetheless, 
when this woman said, your son batted that ball right through my window, she said, it could not have been my son. She said, my son is a pitcher, and he would have had a designated hitter. <laughs> it's like, what? Uh, meanwhile, his friend did, th did throw a ball right through that Cadillac. <laughs> These kids all went on to sports, I mean, huge sports scholarships. I mean, it was like, really, because it, it was quite an athletic bunch that he was running with then. Um, but, um, but anyway, so it's kind of a funny thing where my brother, this immigrant kid, kind of had kind of this, what you think of as kind of this classically American childhood because of baseball. And he was out there just like my Gwen in my book is always, you know, she's pitching in the back, practicing, practicing in the backyard. And, you know, it's funny, I didn't, actually didn't remember that until after I had written, written my book. But, you know, it was afterwards I was talking to my brother and I was like, oh my God, that's right, I, forgot, I had forgotten those scenes of my brother out in the backyard. But, but in truth, he had been in the backyard for hours and hours and hours until he could hit those corners, you know, practicing, practicing. Our next question is how Jen feels about the future of people's personal privacy after writing this book. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I, you know, I, you know, obviously I'm concerned too, and you can see this concern in this book. And um, I was, was really thrilled. Um, the New, the New York Times has been running this privacy project for, you know, over a year now, and um, trying to get people focused on it. And they did come to me. I think they have so much trouble getting people to really grasp what's happening. Um, they did come to me, and, and they, no, they had heard about this book, and they asked me if I would write, a, a, you know, a piece for their op-ed page. Um, which um, in, in the end it turned out it turned into a whole section on a whole fiction section um, that was about kind of what the world could look like. Um, I was actually thrilled that was a, a first in the history of the New York Times that they ran fiction that way. Um, and but when it was all part of this effort of trying to get everyone's attention, you know, um, did we? I don't know. Um, the young, as you point out quite rightly, seem to be especially resistant to any idea that privacy matters. But I find that no sooner do you mention, well, how would you feel if your grades were made public? <laughs> they suddenly, <laughs> their attitude seems to shift, you know what I mean? And, um, and I think that, you know, I, I think that they're so young that they don't really realize that there are things that you might want, you might not want people to understand. But if you talk about things like, well, what if you had a friend who's anorexic? You know what I mean? Like, would you really want that to be public? I think they, they you know, I think, you know, they don't have to be that old to realize like, oh, Actually, no. Actually, that could be bad. You know, um, you know, anything that could affect their getting into college. You know, like, you know, really, would you really want that to be public? You know, <laughs> you know that you had to take, you know, your chemistry class three times. Would you really want that to be public? Um, and so, you know, I think that they, you know, there's ways of talking to them where they think they understand that there could be concerns. Um, but I, I think if you just ask them, well, do you care about your privacy? They just think it's an old, old foggy idea. You know. It, oh, I know. They just, you know. Although, if you ask them, well, can I, do, do you mind? If, do your parents? Do you mind if your parents have find your friends on, you know, so that they can find you and they know where you are on Saturday night? <laughs> suddenly, so, suddenly they're much more protective of their privacy, <laughs> right? Imagine what? Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine that. You know. So I, as I say, if you if you ask about them about it in the abstract, they go ah. And then you say, well, <laughs> I happen to know that you were not at X. You know what I mean? Uh, then suddenly. So, but I, I think there's a lot, I think there's, you know, I mean, you, you don't write a book like this in order to have a message, you know what I mean? Like, that's not what I'm doing, but I, there is a way in which, yeah, you know, I mean, I hope to raise consciousness, you know what I mean? Raise the hue and cry, and, you know, get people to pay a little more attention, and, you know, somebody posted on, you know, 
Amazon comments, you know, under my book, that my book really made them think again about, you know, kind of their privacy set, uh, settings and how they were using technology. And I feel like, well, good. <laughs> I'm glad I wrote my book because I think that, um, yeah, and I, and I think some of these, you know, it, you know, Alexa seems really convenient. And then the more you find out about it, and you probably know more than I do, uh, you know, the more alarming it is. Um, I, did, I do have, um, coincidentally, a friend of mine, a very brilliant friend I had from high school, uh, was one of the people who first developed the internet. She's right in there with Al Gore. Um, and uh, I just saw her, I was just at Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C., you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I asked her, so do you think my book is alarmist? Do you know what I mean, kind of about technology? You know, because she's on the privacy end, and she sort of said, it is so much worse than people realize. I mean, it's just like, it is so much worse. And, um, and her view is that she's actually working on the technology end, but that basically the, they, they cannot solve this technologically alone, and we need policy. You know, we need, we need legislation. But we're not going to get that unless people understand what the problem is and push for it, right? This reader inquires about the inclusion of climate change in Jen's book. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, there is in my book, climate change, unfortunately, um, has progressed. You know, and you know, so we have this massive flooding. I will say that I also had fires in my book, and that was before. You know, so when all these fires are happening last summer, I was like, oh God, it's my book coming true. Um, but, um, but, um, and then you know, as a result of all this, um, you know, the netted they live on the high dry land. And, uh, and the surplus, either they live kind of on swampy land or they don't live on land at all. They live on the water in kind of these, you know, plastic 3D printed houses, um, houseboats really. Um, and yeah, so, you know, so there, there, there's been a, a lot of change. And of course, you know, a, lot of, a lot of things that we take for granted have also changed. Gardening has changed because there's so much drought. So, you know, all the vegetables have all been, all been um, crossed with succulents. <laughs> so, it's, you know, your lettuce is just not what it used to be. Um, you know, I, it's funny, interestingly, just because go back to the science fiction thing, you know, weirdly, I don't have that much tech in my book. I mean, I think that part of me, part of me is just not that interested in, in that sort of thing. But also, I think, uh, you know, it's like it was going to change so fast. I mean, I realize that, you know, anything that you put that seemed like it was kind of like, cutting edge, you know, sci-fi type thing was going to be passe immediately, really by the time my book was out. This technology is moving so fast. Um, but we do have things, you know, so I do have things like, the, but the house does clean itself, you know. So, you know, one thing about, you know, so you know, people have asked me, you know, this is, the, you know, they're sort of saying it's a 1984 for our time. Um, it, you know, it, it, it is many ways. Um, but one of the big differences is, you know, where Big Brother was this menacing Right, this menacing presence. Aunt Nettie is consumer friendly. It's seductive. You know, it doesn't. It hasn't taken us over by force. We've given it our power. You know. So, um, and if you think about it, I mean, like I'm as, as susceptible as, as to this as anybody. I mean, I love my Roomba. You know, <laughs> my my kids say that I treat it like a pet. You know, I mean, I talk to the Roomba. I think, oh, the Roomba's stuck. We have to go help the Roomba, and you know, and you know, I am very attached to the. I mean, so and, and I and you know, I don't know. You know, I I've resisted having an Alexa, but if Alexa really pick up my whole house, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure. You know what I mean? This is where you know, it's it's like I don't know. You know, I'm like concerned about privacy. I mean, am I that concerned? Can you imagine? So, um, so you know, 
anyway, so a lot of things have, what I can say, it's, it's, but we hope to avoid this world. This audience member wonders how Gishgen finds out who her readers are. <laughs> well, I know a little bit because, um, because they write to me. You know, so because because of Facebook and you know various kind of media, you know, all kinds of people I never know when I open my message thing, I I never know who, who I'll hear from. So that's a little bit how I know. Um, you know, it, but of course a, a lot I don't know. I mean, I mean, like I, I gather that they're baseball people because of the letters, and you know, like I, you know, I hear from people, um, and um, yeah, and I know, you know, I know, like I say, I know because of, of various kind of invitations that I get. Do you know what I mean? I know that they have identified this as a book that's in, of interest to their fill in the blank. Um, so, but but past that, actually, there's a lot of people, of course, I still don't know. You know what I mean? Also, people come up to me at readings, you know. Um, but I can, um, but but I but I can see that there are many people in this audience that are very different than the kinds of people that I I might have seen four years ago, you know. Um, and, and I will say also, with also even, but even at that point, there was a big split, or not a split, but there was, well, I guess there was a split between people who knew me as a nonfiction writer and people who knew me as a fiction writer because, because I wrote these five fiction books and then these two nonfiction books. So it was very confusing to many people. And they got like, wait, I didn't, you know, I was like, what, you write novels? You know, people, so, I mean, I literally have an audience where half the audience are like, they're all like fans of Christian the novelist, and the other hands are, you know, Christian the, you know, the nonfiction writer. And they would be looking at each other like, like, wait, what? <laughs> and now I've gone off in yet another direction. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering where Jen gets the inspiration for her books. You know, people, one of the things that happened when I was writing in the nonfiction, people, a lot of people would ask me, what is the difference between writing fiction and writing nonfiction, right? And I would always say that, you know, nonfiction you can write when you are completely awake, but fiction you need to be a little asleep. True or not true, Jeff? Yeah, right? Um, Jeff went to read to school with me, Iowa. Um, you need to be a little bit asleep. You know, you, there's a part, you know, you cannot be using your kind of rational brain. And so it's not so much that you're having like visions, so much as that you're just kind of in this very receptive state. And then I, I will say that not having to come out of it for a fiction writer is the single thing that we want more than anything in the world. That's why fiction writers are so irritated when you interrupt them even if you only interrupt them for what seems to you to be five minutes. And I will say that right now, I seem like a perfectly reasonable person, I hope. But if you were, <laughs> if I were to be in the middle of something and you were to kind of come in, you might find that you would find a much less reasonable person before you. And, um, and the reason is because that once you lose this kind of threat, you know, it's, you, it seems like you should be able to, like, and if you're writing nonfiction, you can go right back to where you were. But if you're writing fiction, you may or may not be able to go back to where you were. So that this business of having uninterrupted, and, and any fiction writer will tell you too, like five days of uninterrupted work is like five months of interrupted work. I mean, and that is not an exaggeration. I mean. Not having an interruption is just the biggest possible gift. So, um, and you know, and like I say, in this case, I just ha I had this block of time. I did research for this also because I, I mean, as you know, there's a lot I knew about baseball kind of viscerally, but I had there's a lot I had to research about. There's a lot of pitching in this book, and I had to research all that stuff too. 
Um, so it's not, but but it's still different. The other research is, you know, you, you know, you're, you know, it's footnotes, and you know, you're making an argument, and you have to, you know, anticipate people's counter arguments, and, you know, here it's very different. It's more here. It's more like you're casting a spell, and you you don't want anybody to fall out of the spell. That's very different than having to anticipate counter arguments. Do you know what I mean? It's more like, um, but if it is true though, however, if you you know, you get some fact wrong, especially when it comes to baseball, you get even a very small fact wrong. And, you know, all those baseball fan, people who are now your fans, boom, they have fallen out of your book and, and, a, and a letter will immediately ensue. <laughs> so it's when, you know, with every book, there's always a reader that you're kind of a little bit worried about. And when they sent this book to um, Jane Levy, uh, who was the biographer of Babe Ruth, um, uh, Babe Ruth, Sandy Koufax, uh, uh, Mickey Mantle, uh, you know, and, and, and famously persnickety. And when they sent my book to her for a blurb, I just thought, oof. <laughs> but actually, she, she did love it, and I did pass. And she's actually now my, my biggest fan, I would say. Um, but, but that was at the moment that when I passed with Jane Levy, I just went, <sighs> Thank you all very much. That wraps up our Ramsey County Library New Brighton event with GishGen. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Brad Taylor at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. Brad Taylor is the pen behind the High Octane and New York Times bestselling Pike Logan series. Hunter Killer, the 14th and latest installment, finds Logan's covert ops team, who boast a deserved reputation as apex predators, in an unfamiliar role of prey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>